Again, welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are uh, in the uh, uh, season of Christmas, but we are shifting gears to the season of Epiphany. That word may not sound very familiar uh, to some of you. Uh, January 6th is uh, Epiphany. Uh, You know that this is uh, a season in which we uh, celebrate an aspect of the life of Jesus or part of the life of Jesus in which the Magi come looking for him. But they're not looking just for anyone. You recall that they're looking for the king, the king of the Jews. And what we're going to do over these next three Sundays is we're going to talk about the kingship of Jesus, partly because the season of of Epiphany is the season in which the kingship of Jesus goes out to the world of the Gentiles, but also partly for this reason. We need to remember that we are a part, as Christians, of a royal family. Now, I think about this because I spent uh, earlier... Uh, last week reading our governor's most recent executive order. When I signed up to be a pastor, I didn't think that I would spend much, if any, of my time at all watching the Office of the Governor's website for executive orders. But I've read quite a few executive orders over the past few months. I'm not happy about it. I don't care for it. But this would be a good opportunity for us to remember that uh, we actually are the followers of the one true king. He is the ruler of all ages and the ruler of all other kings. We need to remember that as Christians we are part of a royal family. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend three Sundays, again, a theme of epiphany, but three Sundays talking about the kingship of Jesus, looking at New Testament passages. And so this morning, we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And we'll be talking this morning about uh, the king having a kingship over our identity. And next week, we'll look at Galatians chapter 5, and we'll talk about our king having a kingship over our daily life. And then finally, uh, we will uh, study the kingship of Jesus from Revelation chapter 21 or 22. Uh, Pastor Bennett will be preaching that sermon. And we'll look at the king having a kingship over our greatest hope. Personal identity, daily life, greatest hope. This morning we'll talk about our personal identity uh, being a part of the royal family. But for little theologians, I see a few of you here this morning. I'd like for you to draw a picture for me of a cockpit of an airplane. Uh, My father and my stepfather were both in the Air Force. I grew up around aircraft. Maybe you haven't, but draw a picture for me of the cockpit of an airplane. The passage again is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, the kingship of personal identity. Uh, Would you join me in prayer, and then we'll read this passage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being with us this morning, by your sovereign hand guiding us to this place this morning. I thank you for being very patient with us, long-suffering. Thank you for never neglecting us, separating yourself from us in Christ. And thank you for teaching us, such a good pastor to us you are. And so we thank you for teaching to us by your spirit in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. You know, deference, you know that word. Deference is actually a very difficult thing to practice. To defer to someone else in a good way, a positive way, is actually very hard. It's easy to blame other people. That's quite easy. But to defer to them in an affirmative way is actually hard. We sometimes hear this, and we generally like when we hear it. We like when we hear uh, an athlete defer to his or her teammates. We like when leaders defer to other leaders, those with whom they work. We like to hear husbands defer uh, to their wives. Deference, though, is very hard. And Paul, however, is actually very good at it. In verse 15, he says that he is the foremost sinner. That's what he says about himself. He says he's the first in line, as it were, the first sinner. Of all of those who are sinners, he's the first. We'll talk more about that. But in verse 16, he simply calls himself the foremost. I'm the foremost. That's a funny title for oneself. But really what he's doing is he's deferring to Jesus. He says the very end in verse 17, this wonderful doxology that Jesus is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. And Paul, though, all over this passage, not just at the end, is actually deferring to Jesus over and over and over again. That Paul, he understands that his entire identity is surrounded by the king, and his entire uh, drive or direction or mission is likewise surrounded by the king. And Jesus is not just a king, any king. He's the most powerful king. The king of the ages, again, immortal, invisible, only God of all honor and glory forever and ever. Those of you who know me uh, know that I really like structure. I like when things are uh, organized. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's very annoying. But if you look at this passage, you'll see that there's a great deal of structure and order in this passage. The first half, verses 12 through 14, the king of ages makes our identity, surrounds our identity. Uh, You can see 12 through 14 as its own section about identity. And in the very middle of that section, verse 13, Paul says, I receive mercy. I receive mercy. That word mercy is right in the middle of the first half of our passage. 
And in the second half of the passage, uh, the king of ages actually drives that identity forward. The king of ages is actually causing Paul to move forward. So 12 through 14, the king of ages is uh, defining Paul. And then 15 through 17, uh, the king of ages is actually uh, driving Paul uh, forward. And again, right in the middle of the second half of the passage, verse 16, what do you see? I received mercy. The phrase shows up twice, right in the middle of both halves of this passage. The first half about identity, the second half about the movement of that identity. The mercy of the king of ages defines and drives all Christian identity. The mercy of the king of ages defines and drives all Christian identity. And so really what I'd like to do is just look at the first half and then the second half. And in the first half, the mercy of the king defines Christian identity. Now, uh, we have to admit right at the very beginning that we think that we have the power to define ourselves. That's actually very important for us. We talk a lot about identity. And what happens is we tend to be very overprotective about our our identity. We make it so personal that we are hyper-defensive about my identity, whatever I define that identity to be. We make that mistake of being overprotective about our identity. And we also make the mistake of over-inflating our identity. Just think about some of the tastes and opinions that you have and how offended you can be by someone who has different tastes different opinions. We're overprotective about our identity, and we tend to overinflate aspects of our identity like our tastes and our opinions. And in this way, Christianity can actually feel rather, well, threatening. And really, Christianity ought to feel threatening. That feeling that Christianity somehow circumscribes or or surrounds my identity, that actually is a real feeling. You must acknowledge that. It's part of being a Christian. And so what we find here is that Paul, he's describing himself not as a self-made man, but as a kind of man that's made by someone else. You see a really ironic example of this over and over again in the passage. If you look, again, we're looking at just the first half, verses 12 through 14. You see I a lot. Look carefully how many times I shows up. But look more carefully. Paul's I is less about himself and more about Jesus. I mean, right at the very beginning of verse 12, I thank him And the him is someone who has given me strength. That's Christ Jesus. And you can look at verse 14, that Christ Jesus is there as well. And there, it's not the strength of Christ Jesus like it is in verse 12, but it's his overflowing grace, an expression that only shows up here in the New Testament. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. And verse 14, uh, this Christ Jesus is the one who has overflowing uh, grace. The strength and grace of Jesus is what makes Paul who he is. You know, we don't actually expect this in a king. I mean, and certainly not a king of ages. If Jesus is really the king of ages, his strength should never be given away, should it? And if he's really the king of ages, uh, he should never give anything away for nothing, should he? He doesn't have to. He's the king of ages, and yet he does. And that's how Paul understands himself. This 
Christ Jesus is the one who gives strength, and he's the one who has overflowing grace. If there was my own self-made personal identity, what would it look like? Well, I can say this for sure. If I had my own self-made personal identity, it's going to be based on my strength. I'd define that. I'd define that identity. And if I were to have my own self-made personal identity, I wouldn't need grace from anyone else because to accept something from them, well, it would somehow deflate or mold my own identity. But Paul says that not only the strength of Christ Jesus, the King of Ages, and not only the overflowing grace of Christ Jesus, the King of Ages, but the mercy of Christ Jesus is for him as well. Paul says, I I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 13. And Paul's not making an excuse for his actions. He's actually sharing his own contribution to his identity. I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul's actually describing how he tried to fashion his own identity. He says at one time he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor in a legal sense. He was an insolent opponent. That's one word in the Greek, and it, it just means he's, he was violent. And really what we, what we need to understand is that This is actually Paul creating his own identity. This is his attempt at being a self-made man. You'll recall from Paul's life that he was a very aspiring man. He was very well educated, came from a very privileged family. He was a Roman citizen, and he was very zealous for purity, for moral ethics. And he, uh, we know this about Paul, he Uh, was so zealous that he approved that a man be murdered in broad daylight. You recall that scene when Paul actually approved the murder of a man killed without trial. Well, this is Paul making his his own identity. And if we look in the Bible at large, we see that uh, really there are two kinds of identity in the Bible. One is the kind of identity that's founded on self. Presumably, uh, this is the kind of identity that we think we can make on our own. Paul says in verse 12 that the king of ages judged him faithful, appointed him to his service. But the self-made man or the self-made woman, well, they judge, they judge themselves to be faithful. In fact, they are the sole judge and arbiter of self. And the self-made man or woman not only judge themselves to be faithful, but actually appoint themselves for their own service. They decide what they will do. They write their own job descriptions, as it were. That's one identity in the Bible. But the other identity in the Bible is an identity in Christ Jesus. And this identity is actually more powerful because it's founded upon the work of Jesus himself. He's the king of ages, and he, as the king of ages, gives strength and gives mercy and gives grace. How does this king do this? Never mind why he does it. The the how of the king doing this is his mercy, which is right in the middle of strength and grace in the first half of our passage. 
The king actually uh, mercifully gives his perfect life for our imperfect life. The king in his mercy dies for us, dies instead of us. And the king in his mercy, he lives for us for all eternity. Substitution is all over the place in the mercy of this king. He substitutes himself for us. That's an entirely different kind of identity, isn't it? Before we move from this, I want to ask a question. How do you think it feels to have the identity of Jesus as opposed to your own identity? I think Paul attempts to answer that. Just look at verse 12, what he says about himself. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. In answer to the question, what does it feel like to have the identity of Christ Jesus? Well, it feels an awful lot like gratitude. The thankfulness for a Christian should never be turned off. I thank him who's given me strength, Paul says in verse 12. And then in verse 14, he gives us a couple of more clues as to how it feels to have this identity of Jesus. It feels like gratitude in verse 12, but in verse 14, it feels like growing trust in Jesus and growing love for him. Verse 14 says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. These are three things that we ought to feel as Christians. What is it like to have an identity in Christ Jesus? It's like being thankful all the time. And it's like growing in trust in one individual, Jesus Christ. And it's like growing in love for this one individual more and more over the course of my life. Well, the mercy of the King of Ages defines all Christian identity. That's what Paul tells us in the first half. But the mercy of the King of Ages also drives that Christian identity forward. And now we move to the second half, verses 15 through 17. And really, thus far, really, we've just seen an aircraft kind of sitting on the tarmac. And now Paul is going to tell us uh, how that aircraft actually begins to move. There's a very odd reality about Christianity And as Christians, we forget this, but we we shouldn't. The odd reality of Christianity, something that non-believers see quite clearly, is that every human story, according to God, is a short scene in a larger narrative. Your life is never your own life. It's a life that fits into the larger narrative of what God is doing in the world. This is very important to Christianity. As Christians, we forget this. I mean, imagine telling an Oscar-winning director, this man or this woman just received an Oscar for uh, directing a movie, and we go up to them and we say, you did your scene so well. They would say, it's not a scene. It's a, it's a full thing. It's large. I directed a whole motion picture. And, and we would see, well, it's just, it's just a scene, isn't it? It fits in something larger. Or to say to a a screenplay writer, that was a very good act. A screenplay writer says, it's not an act. It's a unit. It's it's cohesive. It, It holds its own. But Christianity says that our lives are never lived independently. That is a lie. Because the Bible says that our lives are all dependent upon God's great story. And we'll see that at the second coming of Jesus, and we'll all acknowledge it. 
But as Christians, we have an opportunity to acknowledge that now and to remind one another of that now. If you look at verse 17, you, you see this grand doxology, this praise to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Well, why? Why should we praise him? What has he done? And verse 15, we find the answer. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In the fullness of time, we've been celebrating that, celebrating the, the advent of Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, according to God's own plan, uh, Jesus came as light to the world. And he's showing us that our lives simply fit in a larger narrative. And the narrative advances not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. More appropriately, God has made us to live out our identity in the identity of Jesus Christ. Just think about how God created. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. God in creation, he marked us with his image. And he made us to delight in that image. He made us for immeasurable peace, immeasurable joy, immeasurable purpose. That's how he made Adam and Eve. He made them to be, to exist. He made them to create like he's created. He made them to do, to act, to name. He made them to extend not just their glory, but to extend the glory of God even as they extend their glory. He made them to live not in isolation, but he made them to live in his very presence, and he made them to live in the very presence of others. This is how God created Adam and Eve. That's true peace, true joy, true purpose. And yet Adam and Eve became a self-made man and a self-made woman, and they rebelled. They actually chose to fashion their own identity and then to live in that identity, to drive that identity forward. And yet, verse 15, Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. Do you see how every action of ours is actually uh, wound up inside the great action that God has for us in Christ Jesus who came to save sinners? How then do I live with this identity as a Christian? It's actually rather straightforward. Listen, you're always going to be driving your own identity forward unless you understand something about yourself. This is especially true if you're a Christian, but it's true if you're not a Christian as well. You're always going to be driving your own identity unless you see yourself as Paul sees himself. The foremost. His nickname. We all ought to have that on our t-shirts. I am the foremost. You're always going to be pushing your own identity forward unless you understand that you are the foremost. It's not the worst sinner. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying that I am the most wicked of all sinners. He's saying he, see, he sees his sin first. That's the word for foremost. First. He sees his sin most clearly. First in line. In the foreground of a picture it's personal, it's real, it's undeniable. That's what Paul sees about himself. 
And when my sin is in the foreground, Paul is saying to us, so too is Christ's mercy in the foreground. My identity can actually only drive forward, Paul says, when my own sin and my king's mercy is front and center of my field of vision, right there in the forehand, uh, foreground. And when this happens, my life is an occasion for displaying not my narrative, but my life becomes an occasion for showing God's narrative. Paul says in verse 16 that the Christian life is one in which we display the perfect patience of the king of ages. This is how Paul describes his life. This is his identity at work, living a life that shows forth the perfect patience of the king of ages. His life, he understands, is an example to the church, but also an example to all of those who are watching, that they might notice who Paul is. He is the foremost sinner, and he is saved by God's great plan in Christ Jesus. I want to stop here, at least pause here for just a moment. If you keep reading 1 Timothy and you go into chapter 2, when you come into the neighborhood of 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, you find a passage that is actually very confusing and has been uh, the source of many academic articles, for good or for, and for ill. Paul says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're not a believer, you must hear that passage. God's desire is for people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's a thorny passage to be sure. But we as a church want to be a church that, that actually live lives that uh, are circumscribed by the identity of Jesus Christ and then driven forward by the plan of Jesus Christ for us. That our lives would actually show, well, God's patience and Jesus Christ's mercy. I'd like for all of us to consider this. It's a bit logical, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about finishing a sermon uh, with a, a syllogism of, of sorts. But think about this. If I never see my sin in the foreground of my vision, how am I going to live my life? If you never see your sin in the foreground of your vision, how are you going to live your life? I think it's actually an answerable question. You're going to live your life probably in profound arrogance. You're never going to acknowledge your own faults. Your faults will be the kinds of things that, well, they're imaginary. They don't exist. Or they're so far off in the distant that really they're not worth noticing at all. If you never see your sin, you're likely to live a life of profound arrogance. And if you only see your sin, what that, what's that kind of life going to be like? Well, if you only see your sin, you may live a life of profound secrecy, hiding from everyone, making sure no one sees your sin. That's a form of arrogance, isn't it? And if you only see your sin, you may actually live a life of complete despondency, a very uh, dark life, melancholy life, if you only see your sin. That wasn't too painful, was it? But let's go on. That's if you never see your sin, and that's if you only see your sin. Well, let's get this one out of the way. What if you only see mercy? If you only see mercy, well, you're going to live a life in which there's no accountability. You're actually not going to acknowledge that which is true. 
Mercy then is going to, for you, become very, very cheap. You have it. Everyone has it. That's if you only see mercy. And here's what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that, that, that in order to be a Christian, you, you have to live your life seeing both your sin and the king's mercy. You'll never be able to move forward unless you see both together. But when you see both together, when you see your sin as the foremost, and when you see the grace and mercy overflowing in Christ Jesus, then you can move forward and you can do amazing things. Then you can love others. You can be graciously disposed towards others. You can confess your sins. You can say sorry. You have a a motivation that's a motivation from the grand director of the huge narrative, not just the small director of a scene or of an act. If you can see both your sin truly, and if you can see the mercy in the King of Ages, you can finally move. That then is the picture of liberty. That then is what it's like to live under the tutelage of the King of Ages. The mercy of the King of Ages defines and drives all Christian identity. Now, that's what we want to see this morning. And next week, what we want to see is how uh, practically that works out in our lives. But may we not forget, Christian, you have a king, and he is a king of mercy. He's full of strength, and he's full of grace. And as you see your sin... And as you see that mercy, you know who you are, and you know how to live. Do you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for saving us in this way, for sending Jesus, that Jesus would uh, actually come and enter our world in order to save sinners. Father, we ask that you would help those who profess faith to understand that they are foremost, and yet they have mercy. And would you help those who do not profess faith in you to see that this is the only way of moving forward in life, seeing their sin and seeing the great grace of the King of Ages. In his name, amen.